Hello and welcome to our FIS podcast, Castaway, keeping you in the know on the shipping and commodity worlds where we're all at home quarantined. We know that working and business has changed dramatically in the past couple of months, so developing a range of resources to help keep you up to date on everything happening. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website, www.freightinvestorservices.com, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back again. Uh, this week, we uh, don't have Alex with us, so we can confirm that this is a pun-free episode. Uh, but we do have returning Kerry, who's in the office again, and Tom, all the way from Singapore. Hello, guys. Hi, Chris. Hello. So a bit of an overview of, of some of the news we've had this week. Um, most importantly, and this really is the most important news we've heard, is that UK pubs are going to be allowed to back open again. <laughs> that so is key. That is many people will be happy with the news that was announced by the Prime Minister yesterday. Uh, but we have uh, had new localised pockets of the outbreak in Germany and China, uh, and obviously an increasing severity of, of that outbreak in South America, as well as the US, still continuing to suffer quite badly from it. Uh, but things continuing to return to normal. Um, you can see that from the increasing nitrogen dioxide levels in Europe, all that traffic of one commuting again, trying to get away for the tiny local uh, summer holidays that they are allowed to get to. And something that Tom's going to be talking a bit more later on, uh, the Singapore elections are looming, and also the, the US election with uh, Obama coming in to support uh, Mr. Biden. But exactly. let's start with a news article that I've got this week, and then we'll move on to some of the ones which have caught the eye of uh, everyone else. So I was just looking at one of those factors to see. We talked previously about, you know, this has been a huge drop, out, drop down in economic activity. Are we going to get that rebound, that kind of V-shaped back up? Uh, to normal activity. And it does seem from what has been reported in the FT, uh, this, I think this was yesterday, the turnaround in June has been quite quite vertical. That's so, very promising, um, isn't it? Uh, PMI has rose to 47. Uh, that was uh, from the 29th of May and into June. Uh, still below 50, which still indicates, you know, the majority of, of companies are still reporting contraction. But if you're looking at that graph, as I can show to, to Kerry, that is, that is a V. That, that does look very much like a V. Yeah, one, a v. one would have to admit that that is V-shit. So we are definitely seeing that bounce back up. And, it, and it's true that this is similar across the Eurozone as well. So UK is in line with a lot of those others, 47.5 for the Eurozone. Uh, France seems to be doing the best, and that's true. It's been doing the best in terms of containing the virus as well, as it's eased to lockdown there at 51.3. So it does seem from this, this news article in the, in the FT that uh, we are seeing what people have predicted yeah uh, that this would have you know quite a sharp economic turnaround i mean you can't get much lower than neg negative 20 percent <laughs> exactly uh, and i was gonna say after a 20 percent gdp fall in uh in april i think uh i think uh yeah, anything would have been way. an improvement yeah so. exactly cool so um yes some positive news on the economic factor and i assume from other things we could see reports from other countries coming back on china's obviously been one of the uh first ones to come back board and because it was obviously the first hit we'll obviously talk about those impact of, of those on commodities uh, later on um, i think if you uh, yeah. look at some of the sort of noise coming out of fairly senior people in finance and hedge fund space as well over the last couple of days the sort of speak does seem to be getting quite 
quite a lot more positive. So Schwartzman, the guy that runs Blackstone, one of the world's biggest asset managers, is sort of very much now championing a very steep V-shaped recovery, uh, albeit with you know profitability levels not back to 2019 levels until around 2022. But still, we expect you know sharp growth. City are saying the same. Morgan Stanley are saying the same. So more and more people now are jumping on the same sort of V-shaped recovery bandwagon, uh, albeit with some fairly serious caveats attached to it to protect themselves. But uh, but it does sound a bit more positive moving forward. Without a doubt, and it, I think it's a, it's probably a credit to a lot of the government programs uh, that were launched very quickly in countries like the UK, across the Eurozone, and, and even to some degree in the US, uh, of immediate support for people uh, on furlough, immediate support for the economy, uh, a tr- an attempt to, to stop mass layoffs that could have permanent effects, um, and fingers crossed with, uh, with the hospitality industry returning over the coming weeks uh, in the UK and across Europe, we see uh, those employment levels start to pick up again. I guess economically as well, it's quite interesting to read that uh, there's a large consensus that what was done in terms of increasing debt levels of government to deal with this crisis and acting very quickly, unlike what happened in, in 2008, has been very largely welcomed by a lot of people. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it's, it's Keynesian economics sort of proving itself, isn't it? But uh, yeah. It's getting out of it is the problem. <laughs> fine. Exactly. Tom, why don't you tell us about the Singapore election story that you wanted to bring up? Yes, so uh, yesterday we all got the uh, the message that uh, the Prime Minister would be uh, speaking to the nation at four o'clock, uh, which over the past few weeks has normally meant that you're staying in lockdown for a, a few further weeks. Sorry about that, guys. Um, but uh, so we were sort of dreading it yesterday when we were waiting for the announcement, but it wasn't really too much of a surprise yet that uh, Singapore yesterday announced uh, that it will be going to the polls on the 10th of July. Um, so Singapore uh, has been governed by the uh, People's Action Party since its inception. Um, uh, there's never been a sort of change of power. It has elections. It's a democracy, um, but uh, it's a one-party democracy, really. And, and for all intents and purposes, the election is just a... It's a it's a referendum on the formality on on the performance of the government. I think most people realise that you know, it's going to take a few more election cycles for a genuine um, uh, opposition to get elected. That said, um, you know it's been a fairly crazy few months. Um, the world was looking like it was peaking uh, pre-COVID, and then COVID has certainly sent Singapore into a recession. Uh, the government's handling of the crisis was viewed very, very favor- favorably at the start, and then has been less favorable of late. Um, so the rationale seems to be that um, a government needs a strong mandate to bring the country out of this um, of the of the recession. Uh, out of the crisis and uh, it needs at least five years to do that so uh, it needs another term and is essentially seeking that from uh, from the people so they have a full and strong mandate uh, that can't be questioned for the next five years to do what they deem needs to be done um, to bring Singapore back. Uh, interestingly um, the current PM who is the son of Lee Kuan Yew the guy that founded modern day Singapore um, has already announced uh, that he will be transitioning uh, power 
at some point before his 70th birthday, which is 2022. Um, so it will be interesting to see how the country reacts to that as well in an election. That's great. Is there any hint as to who his favourite successor is? Uh, the finance minister, uh, who is also the deputy prime minister, is uh, sort of widely tipped to be uh, the the man in charge uh, once it um once it rolls over. But so interestingly here, though, so the, the PM is chosen by the party uh, to, in, in a similar way to, uh, but it's not elected. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's chosen by the party. So it's, it's a, very much a grooming process um, rather than sort of a, an open uh, election for the new leader. So um, it's been a process that's been going on for quite a while, I think. Uh, so if that's what's being said, I imagine that's who we will see. Okay. Cool. Thank you, Tom. And Kerry, you've brought a story which uh, has personal interest. <laughs> it does indeed. Um, well, the New York Times has got its hand on a draft plan for the reopening of the, the EU borders on, on the 1st of July. And uh, it includes uh, the interesting fact that the EU is likely to ban travel from the US as it reopens its borders uh, to most other countries um, for the foreseeable future. Um, there are scientific reasons for this. Um, there are some striking statistics in there. They said the, the benchmark for the number of uh, new infections in the EU over the past two weeks per 100,000 people is 16. Uh, the comparable number for the United States is 107, uh, while Brazil is 190 and Russia is at 80. And all three of those countries are likely to be barred from entry into the EU for the foreseeable. Um, I have not yet seen the tweet storm, uh, the inevitable tweet storm start from the US president. But uh, I think one of the things this really highlights is the direction we're heading in, which is probably regional blocks opening up. I think there'll be a lot of intra-Asian travel, intra-Europe travel, um, and travel within the United States. But uh, but overseas travel could well remain very difficult for some time to come. Um, and, uh, you know, I think... Uh, I think this is just not a situation that's going to change anytime soon, um, particularly with reference to yeah the U.S. and Brazil, which unfortunately are are still spiking. Uh, U.S. cases now once again growing overall, um, and that curve going back up. So uh, so until we see a change in that, it's it's hard to imagine a change in this policy. Um, and yeah, I I, uh, I await the uh, the Trump tweet response to that. Yeah, and your ability to get back from uh, your well, yeah, trip. exactly, from a planned trip to visit the family, exactly, um, it may have to be postponed. So, well, fingers crossed. But yeah. I, as you say, I imagine we'll yeah. get the tit for tat arguments reviewed by my people. I ban yours, but uh, exactly, we'll see where it goes. Right, let's move on to the last story. Um, Alex couldn't join us this morning, but he did pick up um, an article this morning about the former Wirecard CEO being arrested. So, for those who haven't read, uh, this is. A company which, uh, based in Germany, which has had multiple previous investigations by journalists um, alluding to fraud uh, and other non-such activities. But what they've actually found is that more than $2 billion in cash has gone missing from its balance sheets. So not a small accounting error. Rather, rather a lot to lose, yeah. Yeah. So obviously that's happened. Uh, this has had a huge knock-on in terms of the German regulator 
which has come out of this rather embarrassed by the fact that they've they pursued an FT uh, journalist, uh, a guy called Dan McCrum, who previously had um, wrote, written in a, an article about an investigation into fraud in the company. And clearly he, there was a lot more behind that than what he had, uh, had previously written as well. So uh, a nice figure of six billion Sorry, six million dollar uh, bail, which uh, the, the CEO well, you've got one point nine billion sat in the account. Yeah, a billion, then he, he should be able to make that. But, exactly. oh, you know. it, it does note that he's probably going to make the bail and then see what else happens. <laughs> but um, one story to watch in terms of a lot of these things uh, could involve a wider group of people than initially thought. But uh, yeah, no. Uh, not the greatest story for, for the German regulator financial services and uh, Wirecard generally uh, as a company. But um, let's, no, let's move on. So we've kind of gone over some of the market news that we've seen as well as some of uh, the more general news that we've seen out there. Well, let's move on to the kind of impact on our, our main markets. So Tom, why don't we start with you and see where has iron ore been moving in the last week? Um, so uh, this time last week, uh, we were around um, the 100 $3 mark uh, on the June contract. And today we are around $103 again on the June contract. Uh, Q4, uh, 90, uh, 90 spot 3.0 this time last week and 91 uh, spot 2.0 this time, uh, This uh, sorry, today. Um, the July contract, which is probably more active now, June's basically expired, uh, 101.40 today uh, and uh, 100 spot 60 last week. So a slight increase this week um, uh, in the in the price of iron ore. What's been really driving that? I, I mean, relative to previous weeks, it's it's been very quiet. It's been a very, very steady eddy sort of week. Um, we've seen... Um, uh, the Brazil factor, obviously, uh, on the supply side, still still rumbling on, and uh, as we sort of talked about before, I think that will rumble on for quite a while. So, um, but interestingly, shipments from Brazil have picked up significantly. So, shipments into China through through June picked up significantly. Um, so, we've seen. Which which rings true with what we have been talking about on the freight rates, um, you know. So the, so there is volume still coming out of Brazil, um, but it's very much a case of how long can that continue. Platts, the big reporting agency, was was sort of making some uh, sort of views around uh, that they, you know, as, as much as Vale claims it will not, um, it will not fall short of its um, of its. Uh, of its forecast for the year, it will have to be making up huge amounts of volume over where it's currently producing for the rest of the year uh, to to get anywhere near its predicted volumes for this year. So that squeeze story is still going on. Uh, a new country being brought into the mix that we haven't really been talking about. Uh, so India um, is obviously being quite hard hit uh, by the virus at the moment. There's some real, uh, really big numbers going up there. And India is a reasonably big producer, uh, albeit most of it does stay uh, domestic. Not a, not a huge amount of it is exported. Um, but um, there's still uh, a reasonably, reasonably good uh, export volumes uh ex-India into China uh, from June. So that, those numbers strengthened versus April and May. So so we're seeing yeah, supply constraint 
on paper from Brazil, but not in reality in June, and you know some somewhat easing of supply uh, coming out of India as well. So theoretically, basis that supply side story, given and the, the weakening demand story that I think we'll talk about shortly, we should be seeing. You would have thought some sort of softening over the coming weeks, but iron ore is a sort of all bets are off contract at the moment, so who knows where it goes. Yeah, it's just funny to have one that, as we said previously last week, a market which has moved steadily up, kind of flatline recently. Yeah, it's been very so, yeah range bound the last two or three weeks. I think. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, which is totally unlike Capes. I think the opposite of what's happening on the Capes, so, which have spiked eighty uh, percent on the five TC average over the last week, or nearly twelve thousand dollars, up from just under fifteen thousand to twenty six thousand six seventy two yesterday. Today, we can expect another jump, I would guess, of about $1,500 on that index. Um, and uh, the Panamax is as well being dragged up by the Capes now, uh, not nearly to the same extent, but still being pushed up a very substantial amount from uh, $7,200 this time last week to uh, 9661 as of yesterday's index. Yeah, the same is true, I guess, uh, of positive movement. Uh, across the week for for uh, Brent and uh, crude oil generally. I mean, we were pushing through the $43 mark uh, a couple of days ago, uh, pushing up towards nearly 44 I mean, these are levels people could only hope of in uh, in the April doldrums of, of the price collapse. Uh, we have come back a bit again uh, this morning, back below 43 uh, It does look more like a price correction in terms of of what we're reading through our, our technical yeah. analysis, but not necessarily where the direction is going. But a, a pause on that slow movement upwards. Yeah. Are you still things... seeing a, an inventory build on oil, or is it is it have there been a, what's happened this week in that respect? Yeah. So the API have predicted another build in US US stocks. Okay. Uh, so, but a small ish one, a one point seven million is what they've so, predicted on that. So how how does that? compare uh sorry to put you on the spot how does that compare to to the sort of capacity that we were talking about when we were going negative six or seven weeks back like what's the what is the sort of the storage availability at the moment relative to what it was six weeks ago do you know uh off the top of my head looking at things it does seem to be around those kind of levels that we were at maybe a little bit low because we've we had those couple weeks of quite significant draws yeah which has brought down some of those stock levels. But what is interesting about this week's prediction, again, is the draw on products. Okay. okay. So both gasoline and distillates are predicted to come in with draws. US driving season, yeah. all these other things coming yeah. in. So it might not necessarily be... It does make sense, yeah. yeah but, uh, in, in terms of what we talked about last week with the tropical storm, Christabel mm-hmm. coming through, the yeah. obviously shut down refineries, but they're obviously drawing stocks of the products. It may not necessarily be run through of crude. Uh, going to which may then be why we're getting this prediction of a build. Uh, yeah. But again, you know, it's the the commonest thing of my morning market news is, is <laughs> ripping into the API for getting it wrong. <laughs> so perhaps next week we can talk again about what exactly. the AIA actually said at um, three thirty later exactly. today. But I was just going to say some other interesting things to point out on the market movements for for oil is the gas oil east west is back to normal, okay. back negative again. Yeah. So that was putting the uh, Singapore gas oil above of yeah. European rather than what we had previously was a switch. And yeah. those people looking at scrubbed vessels might want to turn off now as we, we talk about a very strong crack on the high stock of fuel oil prices. <clears throat> There's high demand there for um, feedstock 
of that yeah. residual residual fuel as well as Pakistan coming back into the market again to buy yeah. the fuel. So that's pushing up those uh, high sulfur values. And, you know, the market's been positive across a lot of the products we do in the past week. Uh, another product we cover is fertilizers, for example, and uh, that's been actually etching up over the past week as well, um, largely with attention focused on India uh, as RCF closed its urea purchasing tender on Friday and uh, offer prices were announced uh, today uh, fairly substantially up on the previous tender um, and continuing this rebound from the global uh, May lows. So um, so we're seeing kind of positive sentiment seeping across the board there, even on the agricultural side with yeah. the birds. So let's go into some of these reasons for these positive yeah. or flatlining of, of iron ore for Tom. You've already outlined some of the supply side stories. So I, well, Kerry and I discussed some of those yeah. supply side yeah. stories. Yeah, I mean, I mean, on the supply side for freight, you're looking at a situation that is regionally tight uh, on certain routes. So the, the Cape tonnage for Brazil remains incredibly tight. That's been continuing to spike that C3 rate, that Brazil-China uh, iron ore route um, with uh, 21 uh, spot 75 being done today on the physical market. Um, you know, that's about another $3 up on where we were last week. I was going to um, say, when we first started talking about that C3 five or six weeks ago on this podcast, it was mid mid what five six seven eight bucks maybe yeah 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 it was about it was about six and a half i think yeah. when we first started talking about it so let's pause to just reflect on just yeah. how much that's come up um um uh and you've got to love that volatility in the cape market um you know this has come at a time in terms of tonnage supply where the pacific has suddenly become a lot tighter as well this is due to the aussies pushing out a lot more iron ore shipments as is traditional we mentioned this last week but June is the last month of the financial year uh, for the Australian miners uh, and tends to be the month when they push absolutely every ton they have on hand out the door um, in order to, uh, to, to, to pump up those figures for the, uh, for the end of the financial year. So that has actually coincided with a sudden increase in shipments from Brazil, and that's what's been driving this up. The Panamax tonnage, not nearly as tight, but the rates are just being supported by the Capes. There's a lot of speculation about Cape splits, which I'll talk about in a minute. But um, but that's what's been driving up the uh, the freight, really. Yeah, and it's a thing to talk about the supply for for OPEC. I mean, yeah, we did talk about the, I guess juxtaposition between yeah. OPEC going, we're going to continue our cuts for another month, and then yeah. Saudi's putting out the back door of the news, going, but you know those extra cuts we were doing, we're not doing them anymore. <laughs> so everyone kind of found out about that now. Uh, so they've come out and said, well. You know those countries part of OPEC Plus who have not been doing the full spectrum of, of the cuts that they should be doing? Yeah. Well, they're going to do them now. <laughs> so in effect, so just you know, telling them that, that that's what's going to happen. We've had uh, reports from several countries uh, who have not been fulfilling those. They put forward their plans of this is how we're going to fulfill yeah. those cuts now. So what this has done is really start to impact that um, supply side. It started to, especially if you look at the Dubai crude, it's yeah. really flattened that curve, which was so significantly contango for all those crude markets, saying that you've got such a wash with, yeah. with supply at the moment. You know, it caused that that structure to to come about, and we are flattening. You can see that on all those crude contracts, and that has also impacted a lot of these products. So, Rotterdam three and a half percent, the old high sulfur fuel oil contract, uh, is now backwardated to November twenty. So oh, we're back to positive yeah. spreads yeah. on on those rather than their endless negative spreads and you'll get confused with yourself about things. But uh, 
that's what we're seeing. And, and also what I mentioned earlier about the, the high software fuel oil being strong, those shorter refinery runs being put through on the supply side, you know, the demand for that feedstock is yeah. high, but also this is a story which plays into other refined products. Yeah. The fact that China has managed to increase its refining capability and run through quite significantly. Mm-hmm. Other countries, uh, especially in the Asian area, have been quite slow in getting back to those levels. So you're going to see an impact of at what level does the supply impact that kind of demand coming back from, from the opening up of economies again? You know, will it yeah. be... Will they turn things back on in time or, you know, on what level demand comes in? So that's a story which is is a good one to keep an eye on. I, I guess on the supply side in oil as well, Chris, I mean, we've touched on it a couple of times, but the shale industry you know, needs a sort of 50 60 $70 oil price to be break even, let alone profitable. So I assume there's some significant longer term supply side issues that are being looked at in the US at the moment. I mean, you saw BP writing down 17.5 billion of oil oil fields that they're never going to sort of tap uh, last week. And they the long-term value of oil, they changed in their forecast down to $55 from significantly higher. And BP has always been the sort of the, the highest uh, forecaster of uh, long-term, long-term oil price of the significant producers. So I guess, you know, there must be some serious concerns around, you know, that energy independence that the US has gained over the yeah. last however long now being very much at risk. Yeah, we will go. I actually have some points which are, do not read very positively for the US industry a little later on. But let's let's move on to demand and then we can uh, yeah. move on to those last points. Kevin, do you want to start us off? Absolutely. I mean, the demand side is, is, has been pretty clear and I've already touched on it. Uh, for the Cape size, uh, we're looking at iron ore shipments from Australia and Brazil combined rose uh, week on week by 1.4 million tons um, last week to 26.57 million tons. Uh, that's for the week ending June 21st. Um, this was actually mainly driven by an increase from Australia. So it's worth noting that although shipments from Brazil have increased, fairly substantially. Um, it doesn't quite gel with with the fact that the Brazil numbers are the ones that uh, that are spiking the market right now, whereas actually it's the increase from Australia that's really probably caused the tonnage tightness um, most recently. Um, again, it's worth mentioning, and I touch on this frequently, but a lot of the paper value is coming from expectations of these much better shipments from Brazil, because Vale keeps insisting that they're going to maintain their target of 310 to 330 million tons production um, for 2020, regardless of the COVID situation. And I, you know, all I have to say about that is is that as as Tom already pointed out, it would require a remarkable increase in exports for the second half of the year to to achieve that number. A truly remarkable increase. I'm not saying it's impossible. But, it's, um, it's something but, like an extra nine million tons a month, or something, isn't it, Kerry? Or exactly, exactly. So, you know that that people are happily buying into that story on the Cape market right now. Um, whether that can be delivered as cases continue to spike in Brazil at, at an unprecedented rate, uh, and particularly in some of Vale's larger mines, let's see what happens. Um, and then, you know, in terms of uh, demand on the FERTS market, which I was touching on before, uh, it continues to be led by India. Um, they're seeking to purchase uh, a million tons on the back of strong domestic sales. Uh, demand is also coming out of Southeast Asia and Latin America as we head into Q3. European demand has been flatlining for some time, and demand in the U.S. 
tends to always trail off after the spring purchasing season. So this is really an India-led story on the fridge market right now. And Tom, what about Anul on the demand side? Um, it would appear, I think, that demand is maybe reaching peak uh, for the time being. Uh, we're seeing blast furnace operations uh, slow down for the first time since February. Uh, and we're seeing um, the volume of construction steel, sort of daily trading volume of that, uh, dropping um, from the start of June. So it's 25% reduction on that since the start of June. So I think it feels like um, with the drawdowns that we're, we're seeing, um, uh, sorry, with the, the uptick in uh, steel inventory uh, in the south and west now that we're seeing of China, we talked about the north last week as well, uh, it, it would appear that um, that demand is 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 now not keeping up with supply. So, given what we've just talked about on the supply side as well, you as, and the demand seemingly having reached as, as high as it's going to get without the rest of the world significantly picking up some of the slack on behalf of China as well, it would appear that we're maybe at uh, sort of peak demand for the time being. Uh, and we, we take a breather until Europe and the US and, and India and, and the rest of the sort of uh, developed world comes back online. And I guess the the oil market is a story about Chinese demand as well. One thing that uh, we have noted previously is China's increase in, in demand for, for crude, which is pushed to record levels over 11 yeah. million uh, barrels per day, which is, is needed to be important because things are cheap and it's obviously making up a, a back order of, of things come in. So much so that the port of Shandong now has a uh, very large uh, trail of tankers trying to get in. I believe the number is 41 or over 50 million barrels of oil wow. waiting to get in, <laughs> which I think that they're saying that it's going to need till August to clear. So presumably throughput cannot go up from here. Exactly. So. All those things we talked about previously about uh, China's throughput through uh, refineries is being hampered by exactly that, that kind of a inability to get in enough oil to put it through. So a lot of these factors will, will play out in the next couple of months of what products needed where, what refinery capacity, what's been switched off. There's been a lot of changes of refinery maintenance and scheduled closure, closure. Also, the impact of, we mentioned, the, the storm in the U.S. Gulf. So a lot of these factors will play into what we see uh, from demand for crude into throughput for refineries, uh, as well as the kind of supply side, which we outlined of web product. You, web. Were, um, you were mentioning U.S. driving season uh, earlier, mm -hmm. and I read something very interesting, uh, I think, this morning. So the demand for cars, so car demand in China dropped 83% in February, uh, year on year, uh, but basis now that uh, no one feels safe on the tubes uh, on public transport, um, the the demand relative uh, year on year for <clears throat> for May was up two hundred and fifty percent. So there's been a huge spike in demand for vehicles in China as the economy has come back online, and people are sort of not comfortable taking public transport in the same way that they are. So I think there will be you know some big changes uh, in, in sort of, you know, overall oil consumption might be less, but there might be areas of the of the demand, uh, sort of the, the different parts of the barrel, the demand for different parts of the barrel. Uh, there might be some yeah. significant shifts in that. Obviously, airlines not not being involved, like we've talked about before, but I thought that was quite an interesting uh, interesting analysis of, 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 of a demand shift in the oil complex. 
It is. But let's pick up on what you alluded to, Tom, about the U.S. shale industry. So mm. reading about that this morning, if you look at uh, shares of the 10 largest uh, publicly listed offshore oil companies in the U.S., they have traded down 77% since the start of the year. Uh, also looking at number of uh, floating rigs, uh, this is expected to hit its lowest level since 1986 uh, this month. Now, a lot of these companies are deferring decisions or, or cancelling contracts. Yeah. That's having a huge impact on, on the U.S. industry. And the FT saying that the uh, U.S. shale companies could write down some $300 billion. So it is a situation which looks incredibly dire for the U.S. for its independent uh, oil production, uh, yeah. production and um, just generally, yeah. as, uh, as Tom was saying, you know, that level of, of oil profitability is just not there. Yeah. And then the impact of the lack of uh, investment in exploration, once you stop using a certain certain well, you know, the, the money needed to restart that or it's just not feasible afterwards could have impact on, on oil prices generally going forward for, for quite yeah. a while. Um, and just one more factor to watch on the freight side that I wanted to throw in there is, and I touched on it earlier, watch the space for Cape splits. Uh, the Cape rates are so high now uh, versus the Panamax that what we may start to see out of Brazil are um, shippers, including Vale, starting to, to split onto Panamax ships uh, to, to save some money on the freight costs. Uh, it's a very interesting conversation to have because people love to talk about Cape splits and how this will put a cap on rising Cape rates. In practice, they tend not to be very efficient. Um, you know, at the best of times, the Brazilian load ports, especially PDM, tend to have very, very high levels of congestion. So the waiting time for a berth makes it impractical to use ships that are half the size. Um, but, you know, we are now in that rare situation where we may start to see that, given how much lower the Panamax rates are. So that's one thing that, yeah. That, that we want to watch out for when you're when you're watching the freight market. Yeah, is a could you plot a graph of the number of conversations about Cape split versus the the, the rate of, of capes potentially <laughs> uh, <laughs> to increase? <laughs> exactly. Go along. Uh, no, it's another factor we could add into a technical report, perhaps. Yeah. But no, uh, any other last factors on any of the kind of markets that we covered before finishing for this week? That's it from me. Nothing from me. Cool. Well, thank you, uh, Kerry and Tom, for joining again in a discussion about our markets and the general news around the world that we're seeing. Uh, and to everyone listening, please do join us again for an update next week. Thank you.